0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Our text tonight will be Malachi 2, starting in verse 10, all the way through to uh, chapter 3 and verse 5. And I'll read that text to begin our time. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, against each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god." As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who, awa- who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Well, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate. Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's ask God's blessing once again. Father, we do ask for your help we ask that you would send the Spirit of grace, the one who has inspired these words, to illumine each of them to each of us, that we might understand what you have spoken to your people and through them to us, that we might live unto you in a manner that you are worthy of. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Betrayal, treachery duplicity, double-crossing, treason. Each of those words conjures in our souls a, a kind of aversion, a kind of antipathy, a kind of disgust that m- makes us uncomfortable, that makes us unsettled and even angry. We look upon traitors with a special kind of revulsion, Benedict Arnold betrays the United States to the British. Demas deserts Paul. Judas betrays the Lord Jesus. Our souls recoil from the thought of such men. And that's because betrayal is marked by a special kind, an aggravated kind of evil. It's one thing to sin against someone openly by some sort of act of outright unrighteousness, but it's another thing to cover that act of enmity under the cloak of friendship. Betrayal is so repugnant to the virtuous mind precisely because it is a breaking of trust. It is evil masquerading in the name of goodness. Again, hostility and enmity in the name of friendship. It's laced with the most vicious kind of deception, the kind that lulls an unsuspecting person into letting their guard down and then striking them when they're at their most vulnerable. It's why the pain of being betrayed cuts so deep. When Joseph realized that he had been sold into slavery, not by marauders and kidnappers, but by his own brothers, it must have broken his heart. It's one thing to be treated this way by enemies, but by my own family? When David realized that he was being betrayed by Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, and by Absalom, his own son, He gives voice to the pain of betrayal in Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. He says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. We hear a similar sentiment from David in Psalm 41, nine, though this time he's speaking not only for himself, but in a prophetic sense, articulating the thoughts of the Lord Jesus as he experiences Judas' betrayal of him. He says, Psalm 41, nine, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we know exactly what he's saying, because though certainly not to the same degree as Jesus and Judas, and and maybe not even to the same degree as David, Absalom, and Ahithophel, we have felt the pain of betrayal in our own lives. Maybe it was a professional betrayal where there was some sort of breach of contract or someone took advantage of your good faith in a business transaction. Maybe it was a feigned friendship where you discovered that someone who represented himself to you as a loyal friend was really maligning you and undermining you behind your back. Maybe you have experienced what is among the worst of person-to-person betrayals, the breaking of a marriage covenant by a spouse's adultery. To one degree or another, we all know this pain, and we all understand what David was saying in those passages. I could handle this kind of offense from my enemies. I could sustain that kind of mistreatment from the world, but from you, my dear friend, the one who I trusted, we who I have, who we who who have had, what I thought was such sweet fellowship together, that my soul cannot bear. God had bound himself to Israel by covenant. I have loved you, he says at the very outset of this book. I have set my covenant love upon you, and I have bound myself to do you good by my own promise. And Israel had entered into covenant with God. Exodus 24, 7, Moses reads the book of the covenant, and people, or the people respond, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And then Moses sprinkles them with the blood of the covenant. Yahweh is faithful to his covenant. He is characterized by perfect covenant faithfulness. That untranslatable Hebrew term hesed, which is predicated of God perhaps more than any other designation, is that loving kindness, that steadfast, loyal love, that covenant Faithfulness to his people. Deuteronomy seven nine. Know therefore that Yahweh your God He is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his Hesed to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. First Kings eight twenty three eighteen twenty 20, no eight twenty three. Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing hesed to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. It's unmistakable. It was axiomatic. Yahweh keeps his covenant. Yahweh is faithful. But Israel was faithless. Israel was treacherous. Israel broke the covenant that they had made with God at Sinai. They had betrayed the covenant that they had sworn to uphold by faithful obedience to Yahweh's commandments. And not just Israel historically, but this community of Judah of Malachi's day, who had been rescued out of exile and restored to their land. Even they had been found traitors to Yahweh's covenant. We've spoken about it already in our first two sermons on Malachi, how the people, 80 years downstream from God's magnificent promises of messianic restoration, had seen no such glorious revolution and had become doubtful of the trustworthiness of God's character. And how in their faithlessness, they had become disillusioned and apathetic. They believed that God had let them down, that he had broken his promise. And so we saw the last time I was with you in chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, how the priests allowed their hearts to drop out of the worship practices. They, they went through the motions of temple service, but familiarity had bred contempt, and the temple worship became little more than empty formalism. And not surprisingly, as the religious leaders lapsed into disobedience, the people they were leading followed suit. As go the priests of Israel, so goes the nation of Israel. And so while God has been a God of covenant faithfulness, Israel has been a nation of covenant treachery, of betrayal. And in fact, as we come to our text this evening, we find this theme of treachery and betrayal littered throughout our passage. Look again at at the middle of verse 10. Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother? Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. Verse 14, the wife of your youth against whom you have dwelt, uh, dealt treacherously. Verse 15, let no one deal treacherously. And verse 16, take heed that you do not deal treacherously. What's happened? The God, of, the God who is faithful to his covenant has summoned to court this nation of traitorous coven, covenant breakers and he has four charges against them in the text that I've read to you this this evening. Four evidences of their treachery, of their betrayal, of their covenant unfaithfulness as a total contrast to God's covenant faithfulness. But this is not just a history lesson. This is not just a diatribe on Israel's betrayal. The reality is you and I, are no less covenant-bound to Yahweh than Israel was. As we've said in past weeks, if anything, we are more covenant-bound to Yahweh because we live in the age of new covenant fulfillment, united to the very Messiah whose coming Israel longed for. And yet, like Israel, those of us within the visible church are often guilty of the very same charges of treachery We have betrayed our confession of covenant faithfulness and have become unfaithful. And so my prayer for tonight is that Yahweh's rebuke of His ancient people would be an instrument of sanctification for His people today in this place, that we would repent of our own treachery and renew our commitment to live faithfully before God in response to His unfailing covenant-keeping grace. And that first charge of treachery is, number one, the charge of defilement. Defilement. We find this in verses 10 and 11. Malachi asks, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brothers so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Yahweh rebukes his people for the defilement that is brought upon them by intermarrying with the pagan nations. This was a significant problem in the post-exilic community. Ezra mentions it in Ezra 9-2. He says, They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Nehemiah mentions it in Nehemiah 13, verses 23 to 27. He says, In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And then listen to Nehemiah's reaction. He says, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them. And pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. How's that for some pastoral care? What made Nehemiah react so strongly? Why does Malachi call this dealing treacherously and profaning the covenant of our fathers? Well, let me say it clearly, it was not because the Bible prohibits interracial, or perhaps better said, interethnic marriage. That is not the reason. You'll remember that in Numbers 12, we learn that Moses married a Cushite woman. Boaz marries Ruth the Moabitess. Matthew 1 includes Rahab the Canaanite from Jericho in Jesus' genealogy. And Malachi himself, later in chapter 3, verse 5, rebukes Israel for failing to show compassion to the alien or to the foreigner sojourning among them. And so Scripture is not saying that intermarriage is a defilement because it's somehow immoral for people of different ethnicities to marry one another. Not at all. No, what makes intermarriage a defilement for Israel is that it was interfaith marriage, And that's why Malachi phrases this as he does. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. At the outset of the Mosaic Covenant, Moses explained this very thing to Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 3, you shall not intermarry with them. Why, Moses? Deuteronomy 7, 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. And so the prohibition of intermarriage with the nations was for the specific motive of not engaging in syncretism, of not being wooed away to serve the gods of the nation the other spouse belonged to. It strikes at the pure worship of Yahweh. And it's not hard to see how that would work itself out. Maybe some of the men in the post-exilic community were looking to establish ties with the other peoples within the Persian Empire, maybe aiming to broker business deals or land agreements as a result of marriage ties. But then what happens? You live with a spouse. And not only do you grow to care for your wife to the point that the things most important to her become endeared to you as well. But the worship of false gods isn't nearly as demanding and contrary to the flesh as the worship of the true God. And so as time passes and as the promises of this messianic renovation still don't materialize, how easy it would be to become lax in devotion to Yahweh. Back in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah reminds the people that this very thing was Solomon's downfall. Nehemiah 13:26 says, "Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things?" And the answer is, yes, he did. God warned him. In first Kings 11:2, they will surely turn your heart away after their gods." And so this is why this is such a treacherous betrayal of covenant loyalty. Yahweh is the one father of Israel." verse 10. Yahweh is the one God who created this nation by calling out Abram, a moon worshiper from Ur of the Chaldeans, making a nation out of him, entering into covenant with him. And Malachi is saying intermarrying with the pagans is profaning that very covenant by yoking themselves so intimately with those who are not the people of God They are striking at the truths of the oneness of the Father who adopted them and the oneness of the God who created them. One commentator puts it this way, the oneness of God determines the oneness of Israel. God is Israel's Father and Creator, and thus they have one origin and therefore are intimately related to one another. Therefore, it is inconceivable that the members of this people should break the faith among themselves. Why do we not honor the exceptional spiritual unity which binds us together as members of God's covenant people? It's an abomination, verse 11 says. That's the term used in the law of those especially wicked and idolatrous practices of pagan nations. And yet Malachi says this abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem these are the people of god who were defiling themselves in such abominable ways this is jerusalem uh, the place where god has said first kings 8:29 my name shall be there this is the city that is called by yahweh's name daniel 9:18 9, and 19 And because God dwells in and among his people, Malachi calls Israel here Yahweh's sanctuary, his dwelling place. He says, you yourselves are the temple of God. But they're profaning that temple. The sanctuary which Yahweh loves is just unthinkable. And it ought to be just as unthinkable for us as the new covenant people of God. The people of God no longer have any ethnic or national boundaries. But the New Testament does call us a chosen race. We are the new humanity. We are the ones recreated in Christ Jesus, the second Adam, who is the head of the new spiritual race. We are second Adamites. And in that sense... We are only to join ourselves in the covenant of marriage to those within the family of God. The Apostle Paul gives that very instruction in 1 Corinthians 7. A Christian is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord, only to those who are united to one another spiritually because of their spiritual union to Christ. And come together in the covenantal union of marriage. To do otherwise would be to do what? It would be to defile the temple of God with idols. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. How can it be that those who are the covenant people of God, those who have witnessed the fulfillment of everything post-exilic Judah was hoping for, we upon whom the ends of the ages have come, we who are the temple of God, how can it be that we would ever find any pleasure in romantic companionship with an enemy of the very gospel by which we are saved? Believer, how can your soul delight in someone who stands opposed and rebellious to the very Savior whom you claim is the fountain of all delights? Whatever is lovely in a person is only lovely because of what it reflects of the loveliness of Jesus. And so to those of you who are still seeking a spouse, it simply cannot be. That those who are fundamentally opposed to the honor and glory and worship of Christ, our great bridegroom, find a place of dearness and closeness and intimacy in our hearts. That would be nothing other than spiritual adultery, the profaning of the covenant of salvation, a defilement of the temple of God with idols. Now, of course, that doesn't mean those of you who are already married to unbelievers should separate from them. Paul also says that in 1 Corinthians 7, if the unbeliever consents to live with you, the marriage covenant is not to be broken simply because there is an unequal yoke. You honor the gospel by honoring the covenant that you have made. And we'll see more about that in a minute, in a minute. But to those of you not yet married, heed this exhortation from the prophet of God not to deal treacherously by marrying an unbeliever. And that brings us to a second charge that Yahweh leveled against Israel. Not only were they acting treacherously by defiling themselves via intermarriage, they were also divorcing their present wives to enter into those relationships. Number one, defilement, and number two, divorce. Malachi says in verse 13 that God refuses to accept their offerings, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But they arrogantly ask in verse 14, for what reason? Why doesn't Yahweh receive our worship? Answer, because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then in verse 16, he defines that betrayal explicitly, for I hate Divorce, says Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. So Israel wasn't only betraying the covenant that God had made with them via Abraham. They weren't only betraying the covenant law that God had given to Moses. They were also betraying the covenant of their marriages, to which Yahweh himself acts as witness. You see, marriage is much more than a civil or contractual agreement. It's much more than a nice ceremony and a fun party designed to testify to the glory of the bride and groom. Contrary to what Hollywood tells you, marriage is not just another relationship to be entered into and broken off from every couple of years based on fluctuating emotions. Marriage is a covenant made in the presence of God and man in which one man and one woman Pledge their faithfulness one to another for life. Verse fourteen. Your husband is your husband by covenant. Your wife is your wife by covenant. And in Proverbs chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen, Solomon is counseling his son to pursue wisdom, which, he says, will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. See, marriage is not even just a covenant between husband and wife. It is the covenant of our God. In every marriage, whether between believers or unbelievers, in every marriage, God stands as witness in the covenant ceremony whereby he himself joins the two into one. That's why Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so one commentator writes, the job of the witness was actually that of an enforcer or guarantor. Thus, a covenant witness isn't the same as a court witness who simply gives testimony in a trial. A covenant witness was the third party who could and did make sure that the direct parties to the covenant kept its terms. When God sees his people dealing treacherously with their covenant wives, he steps in to testify against them. And why does he do that? Look again at verse 16. Because God hates divorce. What a striking comment that is. What a jarring comment that is. What could move this God of love, this God of unfailing patience, this long-suffering God who delights to give good gifts to his creatures, who opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing, what could make this God hate and the answer, of course, is that the God who is good must hate evil. The God who is righteous must hate unrighteousness. David says of God in Psalm 5.5, you hate all who do iniquity. He says in Psalm 11.5, the one who loves violence, his soul hates. In the same way, The God who is unfailingly faithful must hate treachery and betrayal. And so he hates divorce. Even if he permits it in those exceptional cases of adultery and abandonment, nevertheless, his disposition toward it is one of hatred and hostility. But, you know, it's even more specific than that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This final paragraph of Ephesians 5 teaches us that God has designed marriage to be more than just a plan for human flourishing or as the bedrock of family and society. He's designed marriage to make much of His own glory by magnifying the relationship of covenant-keeping grace that exists between Christ and His bride, the church, All throughout verses 22 to 33, Paul grounds every one of his instructions on marriage, the husband's loving headship, the wife's respectful submission, everything is grounded in Christ's headship over the church and the church's submission to Christ. As to the Lord, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives. As Christ loved the church, so also the husbands are to love their wives. And then in verse 31, he quotes from the first wedding sermon in Genesis 2.24, and he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the very next thing he says is, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This whole time he's been talking about marriage, But this whole time, he's been speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Which means marriage is a parable of the gospel. Marriage exists to illustrate the way that Christ keeps the covenant commitment that he made to his bride. And what is that? I will never leave you nor forsake you. The good news is that Jesus has saved his people from sin, from God's wrath, from just punishment, from fruitlessness and from a wasted life. He has taken our sin out of the way so that we can enjoy fellowship with our creator and redeemer forever. And marriage is purposely designed, Paul says, to display the glory of that good news Marriage exists to tell the truth about the gospel. And the gospel is, in part, that Christ never leaves his bride. The covenant of your salvation is sure, believer. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in Christ Jesus, you won't be out of Christ Jesus. Well, what does divorce do then? Divorce lies about the gospel. When a husband divorces his wife, he is communicating that Christ might actually leave you or forsake you if at some point he finds your sin too intolerable. I just can't handle it anymore. I just can't take it. That Christ would say that about his bride. When a wife divorces her husband, she's communicating that the church might actually forsake Christ as her Savior. Because she just finds him impossible to live with. You don't know what I go through. You don't know what it's like to live with him at home. He's one way at church. He's a different way behind closed doors. I can't take it anymore. But neither of those things is true. Christ will never leave his people, no matter how sinful they are. Why? Because he has paid for their sins by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And the true church will never abandon Christ, no matter how deceived they may be about his love and care for them. Why? Because their eyes have been opened to behold his glory and he has captivated their hearts. Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have words of eternal life. Divorce lies about the gospel. And God hates it. And he hates it in 5th century B.C. Israel, and he hates it in 21st century American evangelicalism. And so you need to hear, heed, and hear and heed this warning. Some of you are tempted to deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Some of you are more than tempted. Some of you are doing it. And the elders grieve over it, and we pray about it. We seek to hold one another's arms up in in encouragement and prayer as we bear the burdens of counseling issues. You are tempted and you do actually deal treacherously with the one who is your spouse by covenant. And so you need to fight that temptation. You need to fight for fidelity in your own marriage because one, you know God hates the betrayal, the covenant betrayal of divorce, And because you love him, you want to please him in everything you do. But even deeper than that, you need to fight for faithfulness to your marriage covenant in the strength of the unfailing covenant-keeping grace that you have been shown by Christ every day of your Christian life. And you need to bend that covenant-keeping grace that you receive from him out toward your husband, or your wife, and you need to keep covenant because it would repulse you, wouldn't it, to lie about the precious gospel by which you have been saved because you delight to tell the truth about that glorious gospel. We learned this morning about how we ought to distinguish ourselves from the world and the way we behave and too often, inside the visible church, that distinction isn't observed in the way that we handle our marriages. Now, for the great majority of you, that is not the case. Take, again, strength. Take courage. Strengthen the hands to deal graciously with your husband, to deal graciously with your spouse. Not first because you're just so in love. But first, because you're keeping covenant the way that God keeps covenant with you in Christ. You've been loved that way. And so you can be free to love that way. There's a third charge of treachery that Yahweh brings against Israel, and that is number three, blasphemy. Defilement, divorce, and blasphemy. And we see this most clearly in that verse we skipped, verse 13. Malachi says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. As a result of the betrayal of both the covenant between them and God and the the covenant of marriage between one another, God has stopped receiving the sacrifices that they brought for the temple worship. And it seems the people became aware of this because God was not answering their prayers for a fruitful harvest. In chapter 3, verse 11, God says that the devourer was destroying the fruits of the ground. So you see, there were economic consequences to God's nation in disobedience. Well, naturally then, the people prayed that God would provide crops, but they eventually realized that He was not answering those prayers with favor. Sin had cut off communion with God. Even as Isaiah 59, 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Well, in response to that broken fellowship, the text says the people wept. But this was not a godly sorrow over sin, for the offense that it caused God that led to their genuine repentance, to a change of direction, to a a forsaking of sin and a return to God in faithfulness. No, it was the worldly sorrow that grieves over the consequences of sin, that mourns over the fact that I got caught and it's costing me something. It was a similar phenomenon that God rebuked Israel for several centuries earlier in Hosea 7 and verse 14. There he says, and they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. They turn away from me. They don't toward me in repentance. They come to worship because they want my gifts, not because they want me. And even their displays of emotion, it's not from their heart. They think their histrionics and their displays of fleshly emotion will manipulate me into giving them what they want. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And when Malachi says... They cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and with groaning. I can't help but hear overtones of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in 1st Kings 18. You remember, in an attempt to rouse Baal to action, these pagan prophets called out to their false god. The text says from morning until noon. And when that didn't work, Elijah mocked them and said, "Oh, maybe Baal's in the bathroom or, or maybe he's asleep." And so, verse 28, they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. Weeping and wailing and raving and even self-harm, all of this was the way the pagans worshiped their gods hoping to move their God to compassion by their excessive displays of emotionalism and willpower sacrifice. We see that in multiple places. The idolaters in the temple in Ezekiel 8 are weeping for Tammuz, a Phoenician deity. Uh, Isaiah 15 speaks about how the people had gone to the high places in Moab to weep. Everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Malachi is telling Israel your heartless worship is no better than paganism. Now, listen, I'm sympathetic to tears, crying and mourning out of a genuine grief over sin is not the enemy here. Spurgeon said, I don't much understand of a dry-eyed faith, and I hear that. But what they were trying to do is they were trying to manipulate God with their ostentatious displays of grief and sadness, thinking, well, he'll have to answer me if, we whip, if I whip myself up enough into a, a fervor. But none of that is for him. It's only for what he can give you. And that is blasphemy. In the truest sense of the term, that is literally taking God's name in vain. Calling out to God under the pretense of worship, all, all the while your heart is empty and your hands are unclean. God says, I'm a witness between you and your wife by covenant, which covenant you are now breaking in order to join yourself to the daughter of a foreign God. You want to deal treacherously with the wife of your youth, with your first love, who has been by your side all these years, to whom your heart ought to be knit together by now, whom you ought to love more tenderly than anyone else whom you have pledged to love and support for the rest of your days, you want to betray the vows of that covenant, and then you want to come into the temple and offer sacrifice to me, and you have the nerve to ask me why I don't accept those sacrifices? See, you get God wrong, friends, if you think you can divorce your life Monday through Saturday from your life on Sunday. If you think that your life outside of church is somehow your private life, that it escapes the notice of God and that he accepts you so long as you go through the motions of Sunday worship. It's not how this works. God is a witness against your covenant unfaithfulness. And unless you come to him in sincere and repentance and godly sorrow over your sin, forsaking the way of wickedness and returning to him in faith, there will be a breakdown of communion. He will not receive your worship except as a provocation to judgment. And you get God wrong if you think that you can persist in patterns of sinning and then come to church. Or not even come to church, just come before Him in prayer. And just feel bad enough about your sin. Do the emotional penance to the point where the tears flow and you cry out forgiveness, all the while knowing that in the back of your mind, you're making provision to go back to those broken cisterns again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't fool God into forgiving you. You can't bribe God with closed eyes and raised hands and loud singing while you refuse to repent of and mortify sin. That would be nothing but blasphemy, nothing but taking God's name in vain. Defilement, divorce, blasphemy, the fourth and final charge of treachery that God levels against Israel in this passage is Number four: insolence. And I struggled to know what to call this, especially because insolence just doesn't seem strong enough of a word to describe the brazen, arrogant impudence of reproaching the character of God. That was the best I could think of. Look at verse 17 and see their insolence. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. Yet you say, "How have we wearied him?" In that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. Or, where's this God of justice? And I don't even, I don't know where to begin after that. Troubles me even to read those sentences out loud. This is blasphemous cynicism. You know, God, we rebuilt the city like you told us. We rebuilt the temple, like you told us. We keep offering the sacrifices. We don't see any such messianic restoration. We don't see the nations being shaken and the latter glory of this house being greater than the first. We don't even see any crops in the land. All we see is the Persians getting stronger, the pagans enjoying life while we languish, and even the wickedness taking place in Israel is going unpunished. I I thought you cared about justice, God but it seems like all the evildoers have it easy and we're here weeping on your altar and you don't even give us a decent harvest. Do you delight in evildoers? Is that it, God? Do you, you must because we don't see the God of justice anywhere around here. It's just blasphemous insolence. It reminds me of Psalm 73 where Asaph confesses that when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, it almost caused him to stumble. He says, look, the wicked have it easy. And so, Psalm seventy-three, thirteen: surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He says, I've served God for nothing, because the wicked who mock him have all their needs met, and I suffer. And You look around, and sometimes it can feel that way, sometimes. I mean, here in Los Angeles but everywhere in this world that lies in the lap of the evil one. But notice the difference between Asaph and the Jews of Malachi's day, Psalm 73, 15. If I had said, I will speak like this, if I kept thinking along these lines, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Interesting that he could use that same word. This is treacherous talk. This is the way those who are faithless covenant breakers speak. Arrogant insolence that reproaches the character of God is the language of traitors. Listen to Calvin make application to us. He writes, such insolence is now seen in all hypocrites who vauntingly profess religion when they are treated according to their own wishes. He says, hypocrites love when God... Hypocrites love to praise God when He gives them what they want, according to the flesh. But He continues, when God deals more sharply with them, they not only complain but vomit forth impious slanders against Him, as though He did not render to them the reward due their just dealings. See what he's saying? You don't you don't deserve any better. In fact, you deserve worse. You deserve hell. And so every moment you're not in the flames, you're getting better than you deserve. And so even in seasons of adversity, when God sees fit to put us through trials and difficulties or to chasten and discipline us, let us not be quick to hurl accusations against God and question His goodness and His justice. Let us humble ourselves under His discipline To receive his instruction as sons, Hebrews 12 says, and be led to whatever repentance we ought to be led to. But aside from the brazen insolence of the accusations themselves, what's especially striking is who's making these accusations. Think for a moment who these characters are who are accusing God of delighting in wickedness. They're the traitors. They're the ones who betray the stipulations of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants by intermarrying with pagans. They're the ones who betray their own marriage covenant by seeking unlawful divorce. They're the ones who blaspheme God by treating him as if he's another one of the pagans who can be manipulated into giving them what they want. And these treacherous rebels are demanding justice. That's not all that uncommon, is it, for those most guilty to demand justice? Because it's not really justice they're demanding. They may call it that. But what they're really clamoring for is for justice to be meted out on the other guy, right? It's never God, come shine the searching light of your holiness into the darkness of my heart and give me what I deserve. No, it's, it's come and punish my enemies. What's God's response in Malachi 3, in verse 1? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, the God of justice whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand? When he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Oh, justice is coming. I'm going to send you a final prophet, a kind of second Elijah, chapter 4, verse 5, who we learn from texts like Matthew eleven ten and Luke 1, 15 to 17 is... John the Baptist, and the Lord, the God of justice, you're longing to see, oh, he's coming. He's coming in the person of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he comes to execute justice, you won't be able to endure it. Malachi is saying the same thing to them that Amos said to Israel in Amos five eighteen to 20. Alas, you who are longing for the day of Yahweh, for what purpose will the day of Yahweh be to you? It will be darkness and not light as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his head against the wall and a sn- or hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of Yahweh be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? See, as the Apostle Peter says in first Peter four seventeen, judgment begins with the household of God, and those who profess to be God's people while engaging in the unrepentant faithlessness of defilement, of divorce, of blasphemy, and of insolence will find that their cries for justice against the wicked will testify against them on the day of judgment. John the Baptist, the Elijah who was to come, cleared the way for Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished righteousness and forgiveness at his first coming. But what the Old Testament saw as a single coming of Messiah, the New Testament reveals to be spread across two comings. To put it in the language of Isaiah 61 2, half of which Jesus quotes in Luke 4 19, Messiah's first coming was to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. His second coming will be the day of vengeance of our God, when he'll come as a refining fire, purging away the impurities of Israel, and consuming in his judgment whatever impurities remain. Zechariah 13:8. Says that in, in that eschatological judgment, the time of the tribulation that is outlined in the Book of Revelation, two thirds of Israel, quote, will be cut off and perish. And Malachi three five talks about them. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the evildoers who do not belong to him in truth, and who do not practice the justice that the God of justice demands. And friend, if God's justice finds you like them on that day in the filthy rags of your own righteousness, clinging to your sin and persisting in your treachery, the God who is a refining fire for his people will come to you as a consuming fire unto your everlasting damnation. You who demanded, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it now? will cry out from the torments of hell. What have we got? Justice. When do we have it? For eternity. Friend, if you're here tonight still clinging to some sin in your life that you refuse to let go of, that you seek to paper over with pretended caring about justice everywhere else but in the heart, if you remain a stranger to the grace of Jesus Christ, if you have still not bowed the knee and put all your trust for a righteous verdict on the day of judgment in His righteousness alone, well then, friend, be reasonable. Isaiah thirty-three fourteen says, Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? No one can stand before the the bar of God's justice. Our only hope is to turn away from ourselves and trust entirely in incarnate justice, the very messenger of the covenant prophesied in this passage. And so I call you to forsake your sin, to come to Christ, to trust in him alone for righteousness and be saved and be humbled as one who is slow to call for the carrying out of justice because he knows the wickedness of his own heart more supremely and intimately than anyone else's. And then after prophesying the destruction of two-thirds of Israel, Zechariah thirteen nine goes on to speak of that one-third remnant. God says, I will bring them through the fire, refine them, As silver is refined and test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. And Malachi 3, 3 and 4 says the same thing. Messiah will purify the sons of Levi so that they may present to Yahweh offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to restore this nation of traitors and purge them of all their iniquities through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. And then they will worship God in Christ, in spirit and truth. And he came and he accomplished all that he promised in the first century A.D. And yet Israel rejected him. They rejected him. They turned away. They hid their face from him, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem them. But one day, that very same chapter of Isaiah 53 prophesies the repentance of this nation of Israel. And we look forward to that great day of the future conversion and restoration of Israel when at the end of the age, the deliverer will come from Zion and work righteousness from Jerusalem, where Christ will come and purge his enemies and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But the glory is that those of us who, as a result of his first coming, who by grace alone have turned from our treachery and put all our trust in that very Messiah already, well, the fires of the day of the Lord's judgments will never come upon us because they broke upon Christ in their fullness as his heart extinguished the flaming sword of God's wrath on the cross of Calvary. The great hymn, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, says, thy heart the flaming blade must slake. Thine heart its sheath must be. You have to be pierced with the sword of God's wrath so that I can go free. And friends, that is what happened. That is the gospel. And so I call you To to repent of your treachery. I call you to walk in faithfulness to this God, but I remind you that your repentance and your faithfulness is not what joins you to Yahweh. Christ is what joins you to Yahweh. Nothing can for for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so for the ones whose sins have been atoned for, how can we walk in treachery to that gospel covenant? How can we walk inconsistently to the grace that we have been shown? How can we break covenant when Christ kept covenant unto his own undoing, unto that wretched cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll tell you why. So that he does not have to forsake us in his justice, but must in accordance with justice reward us according to the righteousness of our substitute, according to the obedience of a man who never sinned in thought, word, or deed, who was never unfaithful, not even in his thinking. What a glorious gospel has rescued us. Let us not be faithless. Let us come to God in faithfulness in the strength of the grace by which we have been saved. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to accomplish it. To do it, to seal the word to the hearts of your people, to purify us, to refine us, that all our impurities may be melted away, and that you might behold in the reflection of the smelted metal the glory of your own likeness, traced upon our own souls by the hand of grace. You are all our hope. We feel the deficiency of our own righteousness. We fling ourselves upon Christ, our great champion, who was able to bear our sins and put them away because of the infinite worthiness of his righteousness and his blood. Lord Jesus, we look forward to the coming of the messenger of the covenant, not as one who has never come, but as one who has come and accomplished all of these prophecies that Foretold of the goodness that you have shown to mankind. And so we, with faith strengthened, look forward to the second coming. We pray that you would speed the day of your coming, Lord, that you would come into your kingdom, put down your enemies, rescue those whom you've purchased and brought unto yourself, and vindicate the great name of your righteousness. Why should your enemies mock? Any longer. Come, set up your kingdom, rule and reign in righteousness and justice. Get what you are worthy of on the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.